I decided I would begin the talk this evening with a little bit of chanting, uh, Pali chanting. Uh, it's a tradition in Buddhism and various, all the different uh, forms of, of Buddhism over the centuries. And uh, this is a very ancient chant from the time of the Buddha. It's uh, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. It's uh, one of what are called the paritta chants. Uh, these are chants of blessing or protection. And uh, I'm not going to do the whole chant, just the first part of it. But I'm doing it uh, in part because I think sometimes it can be really powerful to hear these teachings in the original language. The language doesn't exist except as a vehicle for these teachings. And uh, they were all memorized and chanted for a few centuries after the death of the, of the, the Buddha until they were written down some hundreds of years after his passing. And so it's an ancient tradition to chant these things. And, and the chanting of it is um, in itself, the doing of it and the hearing of it are uh, practices of loving kindness on more of maybe an energetic level in a way. So I'm offering this in that spirit tonight. <coughs> So you can just uh, close your eyes, listen, maybe uh, tune into that sense of uh, movement over time, uh, things like this. This chant is one of the most beloved uh, chants in the Theravada Buddhist tradition that we draw from, uh, at least in part, and um, probably chanted, it's probably been chanted somewhere every day since the time of the Buddha. And it's traditional before doing this kind of chanting to uh, invite the devas to come and listen. And devas are, are different kinds of um, spirits and celestial beings. Some of them live in trees and thickets and groves and mountaintops. And, and there are different planes of them. And you don't have to believe in them. We can hedge our bets. and. If they're around, we want them to be welcome. But it's not a requirement to believe in, in these things. We might suspend disbelief. You know, the scientists say that all of the stuff they can detect in the universe, galaxies, stars, toaster ovens, prairie dogs, all of that is about 5% of what has to be there for it to function. And so some giant amount is falls into what they call dark matter and dark energy. And it's not detectable and no one can say what it might be. So there's clearly more than meets the eye out there. So you can just listen and uh, this invitation to the devas, it just points to the in inclusive nature of this metta practice of loving kindness. And the sh chant is pretty short, so even if you're not into this kind of thing, you'll make it through. Parita <clears throat> <laughs> 
avikita chita paritam banantu samanta chakavalesu atragachantu devata sadamang munirajasa Sunantu sagamo kadang Sage kame charupe Giri sikaratate chantalike vimane Diperate chagame Taruvanagahanege hawatum hikete Bhumachayantu deva Jalatalavisame yakaganda banaga Titanta Santike Yamuni Varavachanam Sadovome Sunantu Dhamma Savanakaloayang Badanta Dhamma Savanakaloayang Badanta Dhamma Savanakalo Ayang Badanta Namo Tassam Bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhasa Namo Tassam Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassam Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Karaniyamatta Kusalena Yantam Santang Padang Abhisamecha Sakko ujucha sujucha suvacho chasamudu anatimani santu sakko cha subarocha apakicho cha sallahukavuti santindriyo cha nipako cha Apagabo kulesu ananugido Nachakudang samachare kinchi Yena vinyu pare upavadeyam Sukino va kemino hom tu Sabbe satamavantu sukitata Yekechi panabutati tasawa tawarawa anawasesa digawaye mahantawa 
Majimarasakanukatula Dita wa yewa adita Yechadure wasanti awidure Buta wa sambawe siwa Sabbe sata bawantu sukitata. This afternoon, uh, when Leela was led the uh, guided loving-kindness, and then afterwards asked if there were any questions or comments. And I was really moved by uh, some of the comments that some of you made at that time, finding uh, more kindness arising in relation to your, your own hearts and minds and body, less bullying, more of a relaxed, open, allowing attitude there. And even though it may have been subtle, and not always available. It was very striking to me that that this was expressed here just uh, during the first day, first full day of this retreat. And and things like this, they may seem like not, not such a big deal, but I think they really are reflective of something quite profound in our experience and really essential in our practice, in our understanding. There's a line that I got from a talk that uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of the founders of this place, gave. He took it from, I believe it's from some version of the samurai, the ancient samurai code in Japan. And the line is, I make my mind my friend. And often, you know, we can find that we're approaching our meditation practice, mindfulness practice, loving kindness practice, sort of like we're setting out into battle in a way. We set up a situation often where we're kind of in contention with our experience or with our inner world, with our own mind and heart, what we find there. And we don't hold it in this way of making friends, make my mind my friend. Often this isn't our approach. We can find that it's we, we view our, our inner world as an enemy to be subdued or a problem to be fixed. So often we, we look and say, well, it's, it's a problem I've come here to work on. These things that I, I see in my life that I hold as problematic, something that I have to fix, work on, or get rid of. But really, our practice, in a very essential way, requires an intention to understand rather than to judge. And we need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance and kindness rather than blame. Years ago, when I was living in San Francisco, California, I volunteered with a program. We were studying the migration of hawks through the Golden Gate area where there's a a narrow crossing of water there. In the migration time, the hawks like to cross there where the Golden Gate Bridge is because they don't like to fly over water. Uh, Most hawks don't. 
And so we were, um, we had set up these special kinds of traps to lure them in and then uh, catch them and check them for parasites and make sure they were healthy and put bands on their, their legs, which I didn't like to hassle them in this way, but the intention behind the program was to learn about their habitat and migratory uh, routes and help preserve habitat. So it was a, it was a, good, a good intention behind there. And so we would trap these different hawks, and sometimes we'd trap red-tailed hawks. Often that's one of the main ones, and they're big, like really big, like five-foot wingspans sometimes, and bodies like a big chicken, only really strong. And they have incredible talons and beaks, which they can put right through your hand if you're not careful. So you have to learn how to hold them in a, but they're birds, right? And they have hollow bones and they're delicate at the same time. And you have to learn how to hold them in this way that requires incredible gentleness and incredible um, care and firmness. It's a real balance, a really art. And you usually get bitten on the way to learning that. But I tell this story because it's, I think, a good sort of uh, image or analogy for a way we might relate to our own mind and heart in meditation, where we, we don't necessarily give it a free rein where it could run all over the place, and yet we, we hold it with this kind of care and gentle touch. And this is a way that we can actually um, begin to befriend our, our mind and heart to really bring this attitude of I make my mind my friend into our practice. And if we get nothing else out of our time here, but some taste of this possibility or some, however, fleeting connection to the idea that we might have this kind of relationship of friendliness towards our own mind and heart, our time here will have been extremely well spent. We could say that the practice of meditation, whether it's the mindfulness practice, the loving kindness practice, uh, a melding of the two of them, whatever kind of uh, inner contemplative practice we might do, we could say that it's uh, about the transformation of the mind and the heart. That's what we're interested in in this. We could, we could say in a way it's the process of bringing the mind and heart together. Sometimes, especially maybe in the West, we tend to split these things. Put our mind up here and our heart down here or something. And there's a way in which we could say that love and freedom or love and wisdom are, are completely entwined. They're inseparable really ultimately in this practice. This is a quotation from uh, J. Krishnamurti that I love that speaks, I think, beautifully to this. He once said, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love, 
It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And so we practice metta, meditation, cultivating, developing this quality of loving kindness, of friendliness, for its own sake, as this beautiful, wholesome mind state, and also ultimately as an essential aspect of the path of freedom, of freedom itself. These are the words of the Buddha from one of his discourses. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. And so when our mind and heart, when we steep them in this quality of friendliness, of loving kindness, when we make this our vehicle, it brings many great benefits. There's much less reactivity, more patience, more ability to be with what is difficult in our lives. It really serves as an incredible source of strength and courage for us. The energy of metta, of loving kindness, is the energy of connection and acceptance. And these qualities of heart arise naturally, organically, really, in our practice as we start to understand, to penetrate, and to abandon the layers of conditioning and patterns of habit, of reactivity that operate so often in our lives, much of the time. These habits tend, that tend to close the mind and heart lead us away from connection, away from freedom, actually. Conditioned feelings of separation. In another teaching, the Buddha once made two very um, simple, I think deceptively simple statements. He said, luminous is this mind, but it is defiled by visiting defilements. Luminous is this mind, and it is freed from visiting defilements. So in both of these statements, the mind made to be defiled or free, but this luminosity is there, this luminous quality. It remains the same. And we could see these uh, defilements, that word we don't use so much. We could see this kind of these energies or mental forces, mental factors in terms of what are called uh, the three unwholesome roots, the three roots causes of suffering in our lives, of self-centered greed, of self-centered desire, of hatred and delusion, and all the different ways that these can show up in our our experience in terms of ill will and aversion and uh, grasping and clinging and fear and confusion and so forth. And so these things may show up, they do show up a lot, don't they? But it's important that we remind ourselves that they are just visitors and that they don't 
change the essential nature of the mind and heart. They may obscure that. We could liken it to the sky with clouds that may come and cover the clarity and uh, luminosity of the sky. But when the clouds go, the sky is not, has not been changed by that. They come and go. They are just visitors. And so one aspect of our practice then, we could say, is connecting, reconnecting with this luminous clarity that the Buddha was speaking about there. You could say, in, a, in essence, rediscovering who we really are beneath these patterns of reactivity, these habits of the mind and heart that have clouded this, that's covered this over. And so we're not getting something that we don't already have in this practice. We're uncovering our own, uh, our hidden goodness, you could say, this intrinsic luminous quality of the mind and heart. This is a, a short part, an excerpt from a poem that Some of you may know it's called St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Canal. This is just a few lines from that poem. Speaks directly to this. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it In words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So in many ways, this this is what our practice comes to, is this reconnecting, putting a hand on our brow and telling ourselves in words and touch that we're beautiful, that we can flower from our own goodness. I once read uh, an interview. Someone had asked the Dalai Lama why, why he thought people found him so irresistible. He seems to be, people who have no idea who he is are drawn to him, find him very irresistible. And he, he replied to this question, I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated, but in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. And in our lives, you know, we may have been fortunate enough to meet people like this, or we've heard about or read about people like His Holiness, who just seem to kind of exemplify or embody these qualities of love and kindness and compassion. It just seems to be what they're made of. There was a, a monk from Cambodia who lived not far from here in his later years. His name was Mahagosananda. He was the um, very beloved monk in Cambodia. He was called the Sangha Raja, the king of the Sangha in Cambodia. Was nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize. And in my opinion, should have won five times. There's a beautiful picture. I, I 
but Sharda knows it, Leela too. At Spirit Rock, it's a picture of the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda bowing to one another, and, and they're bent way over double. Each one is trying to get lower <laughs> to show the greater respect. And in his older years, I used to go and visit and pay respects to him because it was nearby when I was here a lot years and years ago. And uh, he didn't know me, but I was drawn to just go and visit and pay respects. And uh, one of the last times I saw him, in his later years, he suffered from um, some decline in his mental abilities. And uh, he became uh, quite childlike in some ways. A lot of some of the certain cognitive processes were quite diminished. But um, I remember I went to see him and he, uh, I went and they said, oh, he's in his room. You may go in there and pay respects there. And I went in and he was in his room and I, he started handing me bars of soap and packages of crackers off his shelf and, and uh, this huge smile, just beaming. And uh, it was like being bathed in love to be in his presence, just like the field of this loving kindness that we talk about. And when we're with people like this, or like his holiness, seems to have this effect on people. And they relate to us as though we're the most important people in the world. They're totally present for us. And, it's, and they hold us with this quality of care and love. And it's not because of who we are. You know, in the case of Mahagosananda, he didn't know who I was. It was just that I was a living being who had come there. That was, it was based on my sentience, the fact that I was a living, breathing being. And the people like this point to this possibility that one can actually live from a place of unconditional love. And so often we can feel that, you know, we're born with a certain amount of these kinds of qualities and that's just the way it is. And, you know, we'll never could possibly be as kind or loving as someone like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama or Mahagosananda, who I just spoke about. We feel we'll, we'll always come up short if we measure ourselves against against them or someone else that we may have heard of or met. But of course, qualities like this are not just something that we admire in others. We can actually develop them and and our hearts and minds are malleable and uh, we can train ourselves to develop these qualities. If this wasn't the case, there'd be no point in spending time in meditation or on retreat. No point in coming here. There's a teaching that the Buddha gave that it seems really simple and obvious, but on the surface when we first hear it, but it has far-reaching implications in our lives. He once said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. That which one frequently thinks and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And this points directly to the way that habitual patterns of thinking are formed. And we can see this operating in our own lives. We can see how this this cause and effect happens. When we 
habitually bring something to mind, the mind tends to, it's like a groove that gets worn. We tend to go down that track more easily. And we can feel as though, well, we have no choice. You know, our thoughts and, and our reactions to them are, are unavoidable somehow. It's just the way it is, and we can't do anything about it. But actually, we do have some choice in this arena. And of course, we can't control our thinking completely. A lot of it is it's just conditioning playing itself out, and it arises unbidden. But we can pay attention and choose to some extent what we do think about, what we reflect upon. And if we incline the mind at times when we're able to thoughts of friendliness and well-wishing and care and kindness, then this becomes more and more the natural response. We can actually condition. We can wear that kind of groove in the heart, in the mind. It's said that the proximate cause in the text that said the proximate cause for the arising of metta, of this feeling of loving kindness, is seeing lovableness in beings. And its foundation is said to be seeing with kindness. You know, we're all a mixed package, aren't we? You know, we're things we like about ourselves and others and things we don't. And the beautiful qualities we may notice at times and others that don't look so good. But we often tend to focus on things we don't like in ourselves and others. We see that which is not so lovable. We find ourselves, can find ourselves seeing with unkindness often rather than kindness. And this tendency tends to feed the qualities of aversion, of ill will, of fear and judging and separation. But we can make a conscious decision, at least some of the time, to focus on the good in ourselves and others. And it doesn't mean that we just put a a pretty doily on top of something ugly or pretend that we're perfect or that there isn't room for improvement. That's not the point. It's more about a choice, a conscious decision of where to place our attention. And if we make a conscious decision to focus on this goodness, it becomes more and more the default way that we relate. We default to kindness, as Leela was saying, or one of my colleagues. And this can radically change the way we live in the world. We can actually consciously create this a kind of field of goodwill in the world. (coughs) One simple way to do this, to start to do this, is through connecting with the shared wish that all beings share to be happy or to be at ease or to be at peace, whatever words you might use to describe that movement, that wish to be happy, that we share with all beings, even those who seem to be doing everything to bring about its opposite. And this this is an inherently lovable wish, really. It's an expression, it's an aspect, a quality of goodness. We can also connect with suffering and difficulty in our own lives and in the world, in the lives of others. As we all know what it is to be in pain to suffer. We all have had times of this we know what that is. And we, just as we wish to be free of this 
so too do other beings, all other beings. And, and so through these kinds of reflections, we can connect to something that's larger than our individual lives and, and this mixed package that we all might be, something more universal. And when we connect with ourselves, with our own inner world, with others in this way, then these feelings of care and kindness, of friendliness, they just tend to arise naturally as a result of that. We start to see that our happiness and the happiness of others are not so far apart and that perhaps ultimately they come to be one and the same thing. But often when we look inside, we don't find this quality of care and kindness, do we? A lot of other stuff comes up. And we look in our minds and they aren't pliable and spacious and they aren't open. We can feel this discouraged and disheartened. You know, when we know and recognize that metta, this power of love is huge in the world, we know that. We know it's a capacity of the heart, and yet we don't see that it's not there. So I want to I speak a little bit about two strongly conditioned forces in the mind. Two, you could say two of these visiting defilements that function at times to obscure or push aside the quality of love, of kindness. And it's good to, to get to know and understand these, see how they work how we get caught by them. And in the classical teachings, these are called the near and far enemies, or sometimes called the near and far neighbors of loving kindness of metta. So the near one is something that at times can look or feel a bit like metta. It can masquerade and fool us. And uh, this is the force or quality energy of what we could call self-centered desire in the mind. If we look at the quality of metta, of loving kindness, it manifests as, as a generosity of heart. It's, it's a kind of gift, it's a simple offering. It's an offering of a loving, friendly feeling. But this kind of self-centered desire or wanting usually manifests as a kind of taking focused on getting. And it's very different from the feeling of giving or offering that comes with this offering of loving kindness. Because metta doesn't ask for anything in return. It's just put out there. It's unconditional in that way. But this quality of self-centered desire always contains the need for getting something. But it can be confusing at times because it there may be movement towards another being with both of these energies, feelings of being drawn to someone. There may be pleasant feelings there, some feeling of connection drawn to another. But with this quality of metta, it shows up as a wish for the happiness and well-being of another. With this self-centered kind of desire, there's the flavor of always wanting something back. There's conditions are, atta- are, are there, conditions attached to the love. I will love you if you love me back or if you do what I want. Things like that. Depends on beings 
the conditions of the situation being a certain way. And if they aren't there, or if they change, if conditions change, if, if beings don't do what we want them to do, it can shade easily into uh, feelings of ill will. Or this quality can be manifest on a more subtle level than that. It might be harder to spot. For example, if we're doing a metta practice here on retreat, we can find that our focus is checking to see if it's working. You know, how am I doing? Are these, is it, is our loving feelings arising? Our focus on, on what we're getting out of it. And so, it's important to remember, to remind ourselves that we do this practice as a kind of offering, just to an expression of this quality of goodwill, of friendliness and love. And not really so much in terms of anything we might get out of it. It seems a bit paradoxical because there is this idea we are intentionally cultivating it. And yet the only way we actually can is to offer it in this free way without a focus on uh, what we're getting out of it, without this expectation. And so one way we can distinguish between this quality of metta, of unconditional love, and this kind of self-centered desire is to look at the different kinds of mind states that follow on from them when they're present in our experience. This self-centered desire in this way, we look at it and we'll see it leads to feelings of fear and disappointment, often possessiveness, insecurity. But metta, on the other hand, leads to feelings of happiness, well-being, contentment, connection, peace, ease. And there's this boundless, unconditional, limitless quality there with uh, metta, loving kindness, that doesn't make distinctions. It's actually possible to have feelings of well-wishing for all beings, no matter who they are. But this self-centered kind of desire, it's always limited and chooses one over another, makes those kinds of distinctions and preferences, and can easily change to, uh, to very different kinds of feelings, to feelings of ill will and aversion. But metta doesn't easily change because it's not Um, it's not flowing from conditions in the world, it's flowing from our own inner world, from our inner being. So then this uh, far enemy or far neighbor, another um, conditioned, strongly habituated response to the world that obscures the quality of love is its opposite. That's why it's the far neighbor or far enemy, another deeply held pattern it doesn't resemble metta at all. It's easier to spot. It's the energy of, of aversion or ill will in the heart and mind. It has the opposite effect on the mind from metta. We never mistake it. And when this quality of ill will or aversion is, is present and strong, then the mind, rather than becoming pliable and uh, workable and flexible and at ease, becomes hard and stiff rigid, and this aversion ill will tends to lead to feelings of alienation and separation. And it can manifest in different ways, sometimes outwardly focused, like strong manifestations of anger, 
where it's striking out against something in the world. Sometimes it's inwardly focused where it has a retreating quality, this aversion uh, turned back inward on oneself and tends to condition feelings of sorrow and grief and resentment. And it isn't it maybe outwardly focused, but it again tends to uh, cause the mind to become stiff and rigid and um, inflexible, tends to lead to feelings of separation and isolation, obscuring this quality of love. Often it arises when we think about someone who has harmed us or harmed someone we love. We, the thought of that will come to our mind and, and feelings of anger will arise in, in response to this uh, situation that comes to mind. It might re- arise in reaction to things in the past, in the present, or even in the future. We think about something that happened in the past, a past hurt, an incident that is ongoing in the future, or sometimes even projecting into the future some imagined harm that hasn't occurred at all. It might not have any basis in reality, but we can get quite worked up. I can remember times in my life of imagining a scenario where someone would be harming some innocent creature or someone I cared about. And, and getting quite angry and worked up about it. It was forgetting in the moment that it was a complete fabrication, had no basis in reality at all. But there are these feelings, there can be feelings of self-righteousness that arise at these times. You know, it's justified, I'm right, it is wrong. I should be angry. We can get very caught and seduced by this because it can feel good. We can feel strong and powerful there. We get pulled into it. And often people express, I've heard this many times, people say, well, anger is, is my motivation. It's what gets me to do things. If I didn't have anger, I wouldn't uh, take care of it. I wouldn't do things. You know, anger against injustice, for example. Uh, I've heard people express this often, that it really serves in this way. And often it can serve to... Um, override or cover up feelings of powerlessness or fear. And there may be some feelings of strength that come with anger in this way, but it takes a, a toll. It exacts a high price, I think, on our, uh, in terms of our well-being and our health, our inner health, in terms of our openness and ease as we move through the world, because we're always uh, often then relating to life in this adversarial way, this posture of me against the world. And so we might look then at compassion as an alternate motivation because true compassion does not exact this kind of high price, doesn't take this toll on our lives. Reminds me of a famous quotation from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He once said, I have decided to stick with love Hatred is too great a burden to bear. It just takes too much. It's too high a price. Hmm. I have to edit this a bit. So when we turn our attention towards qualities of love, care, compassion, towards our own goodness, towards the goodness that we can uh, find in others in the world. 
And this can lead us to connect with another really important and beautiful quality of mind that I think is really vitally important to our well-being and vitally important to this practice. And that's the quality of forgiveness may come up on retreat. Forgiveness means, we could say, it's letting go of suffering that comes from anger and resentment. It means learning to live in the present without the burden of and suffering of holding on to past hurts and grudges. And it doesn't mean, forgiveness doesn't mean condoning unskillful actions in any way. That's not there. Some, act, some actions may not be forgivable. There are actions that are not forgivable. And we may not be able to forgive them, but we can forgive a suffering being who is capable of committing these things, of doing these actions. We all know what it is to act from suffering and confusion and pain because we've done so. And some beings are, this is incredibly strong in their lives. There's a lot of suffering and pain. Confusion may be far more than we can even imagine. And they act from this and, and do things that cause great harm. And their actions may not be forgivable, but we all know what it is to act from a place of suffering and confusion. And so we, that's where we have some possibility to work. And when we hold on to past hurts, carry them with us, we're letting the past then dictate who we are and how we live in the present. And there's a great loss of personal power when we do this, when this is operating in our lives. We forget that how we feel ultimately isn't so much dependent on outer conditions, but on a certain level, and ultimately perhaps it's our, we have some choice here, it's our choice. We can hold on to painful events and carry this burden of suffering, or we can choose to remove this, to let it go by practicing forgiveness. Someone once said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. Giving up all hope of a better past. And we can do this. We can give up hope of a better past because we can't change that. But at the same time, we can start to let go of the burden of hauling it around with us. We can't change what happened, but we can choose how we want to live in the present. And in this way, this practice of forgiveness is very empowering to us in our lives. And there's a beautiful practice of both asking for and extending and offering forgiveness that's done in in a lot of the monasteries where I have spent time in uh, Buddhist countries in Asia. It's often done at the end of a period of retreat or at a time when one is taking leave and, and moving to another place where we, uh, we would um, say something, words to this effect. If through my uh, actions, my words, my thoughts, I have harmed you in any way, I ask for your forgiveness. And in any way that I may have been harmed, I freely forgive you. And sometimes we have to extend this energy to ourselves. Sometimes it's ourselves who we have to forgive. And of course, it it can take a while for this practice to bear fruit, like any of these practices. 
that we might do. We can't expect instant results just because we've decided it's a good idea, for example, to practice forgiveness. It's not going to just suddenly work. Too bad. But the aspiration, the intention to forgive is, is the first crucial step. And we have to remind ourselves that practices like forgiveness, the practice of metta, really any meditation practice is a, a practice of forgiveness and um, a practice of purification in a way. This is called the path of purification. And a lot of the time our experience might not feel so good and a lot will come up and we may start to practice forgiveness, for example, and find that what comes up is, no, I don't forgive, I can't forgive. That may be what comes up when we initially begin this kind of practice or with metta. When I first was introduced to metta practice, I had to just be mindful of hating. I would, someone would lead a guided metta and I would be sitting there hating, hating, hating. Just really intense uh, feelings of strong aversion. Kind of, I hated the person, I hated what they were saying, I hated everything. Now, we could easily fall into some judgment around that. <laughs> it doesn't look so good. Just cultivating loving kindness and all that's arising is, is everything but that. So we have to be really careful if this happens because it may happen. And it's not a bad sign if it does. It's actually a good sign. It's not so much fun. It doesn't look beautiful. It doesn't feel so good. But it's not a bad sign. Everything is going to eventually come up when we, if we go to any depth in these practices. And metta, perhaps, uh, and practices like forgiveness maybe bring it up more than anything else. Someone once described metta as being like a magnet that pulled uh, impurities out out everything else. And so we see these things and we have to be careful not to judge ourselves or the practice too harshly if this happens. And to really remind ourselves that by forming these powerful intentions to cultivate love and friendliness and kindness, to cultivate forgiveness, that what we're doing is planting seeds by doing this. And that these seeds will uh, sprout and bear fruit in their own time and we can't force that process. We can't force them to grow. It's like a flower bud, like the bud in that poem that I read. We can't, if we see a flower bud, we can't pull it apart because we want to see the flower. If we pull on those petals, we're just going to destroy it and it never will bloom, never will open. And so we have to really remind ourselves to bring this attitude that we're planting the seeds for these, by forming these intentions in the heart and mind, and that they'll, they'll bloom and uh, sprout and bloom in their own time. And so we have to really bring a lot of patience and perseverance and, and really letting go of expectations to this practice. Last night, Leela said, that she had changed her religion to uh, on Facebook, on her Facebook page to kindness in response to uh, something the Dalai Lama once said. He said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And we can, uh, you know, it sounds, we hear this, it's a famous quotation of his and it sounds very sweet and, and uh, we might relate to it as 
something that you like something you'd read on a greeting card and and miss the profound understanding that that is there behind making a statement like that and this quality of care kindness really is an expression in the world of the deepest possible understanding an expression of the liberated heart his holiness also once said be kind whenever possible it is always possible. Something really, I think, to reflect on. It's not always easy, but it is always a possibility. So I'll leave you with a poem, one of my favorite poems, just an expression of metta, an offering of metta to you to end this talk this evening. This is uh, called The Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge, and it's by Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, one of my favorite science fiction writers. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains and let the paths of your fingertips be your maps and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So we'll just have a few more seconds of quiet here together and I'll ring the bell in just a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have some time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.